All right, if you want to make a male child of the 70s or 80s, all you need to do is bring up a Rocky film. If you uh, if you are tracking with me on that, you know, uh, Rocky II is probably one of the best starts to a movie that you'll ever find. It actually goes back to the last two rounds of Rocky I. And I actually rewatched that this week, just kind of remembering and reminiscing being a kid a little bit. And it was ingenious, because this is the days before VCRs, DVRs, you couldn't record, you couldn't go back and remember anything. And so this film was really picks up on the way to the hospital after those two fighters fight this epic battle in Rocky Chapter 1. And I tell you, I don't know if it tracks with the younger generation, but the music is swelling. Um, there's, you know, there's this close combat, you know, going back and forth. You've got the cracked rib of Apollo, the swollen eye of Rocky. Rocky's, you know, Rocky's battling and, and the announcers, you know, I don't know, let's keep him up, you know, and he's up there just boom, hitting and stuff. And then they go to their corner before the final round and Rocky's there and he says this, he says, I can't see nothing. I can't see nothing. Cut me, Mick. Cut me, Mick. Remember that? And Rocky goes down and Mick's going, down, down, stay down, Rock. Right? And so the whole thing just is swell. And again, I literally, I kid you not, I'm getting a little bit teared up in my office this week going, this is ridiculous how much this impacts me. My parents actually bought us boxing gloves for Christmas one year. Four boys. I was the third youngest. Do I like that my parents bought boxing gloves? No. We were thrilled. I was thrilled for like the first time until my parents left the house and the oldest brother was supposed to be watching. And, and uh, we had some good, some, good, uh, some good boxing matches there in the home. I bring, up, I bring up Rocky because Judges actually starts just like Rocky too. It actually picks up and quotes from Joshua. So Joshua and Judges, you have to see these as kind of companion books. These are one of those books that they're together in the Bible for this reason. They really tie one into the other. Uh, In fact, Joshua is quoted in the book of Judges. But unlike the next 16 Rocky films, which all follow the same basic script, right? You know there's a battle at the end. You know Rocky has to win. Um, uh, the, the book of Judges takes a giant departure from the book of Joshua. Here's a couple of examples. In Joshua, uh, the land control is established through military victory. In Judges, there's some land lost. Uh, Joshua marks, uh, is marked by obedience, by unity of the nation, and by this renewed passion of covenant with their Lord Yahweh. And in Judges, um, it's about a disobedient, disunified people who are constantly breaking the covenant of their God. Remember, it's covering almost uh, a, a few hundred years. And finally, Joshua establishes strong leadership, while Judges shows an ever-worsening leadership crisis. We were on a walk the other night, uh, a couple weeks ago, as I was prepping for last week, and I was kind of nerding, you know, kind of pastor nerding out on my wife as we're walking on the block. And I was telling her, I said, man, babe, it's amazing how as you dive into even the structure of Judges versus the structure of Joshua, there's lessons there. Joshua is laid out very clear and organized. There are very clear theological conclusions found in Joshua. Guess what? Judges is sporadic. It's not even laid out chronologically. That's evidently not what the author was was most concerned about. It's fragmented. It's disjointed. It actually gives these theological conclusions that are that are not wishy-washy, but but harder to kind of fit together. And it actually, by its literary structure, tells the story of Joshua versus Judges. They're two very different books, but tied together. The title this morning is this, 
Um, the idea is that simple obedience gets all jumbled and confused when you overlay, when it's overshadowed by expedience. Simple obedience gets jumbled and confused when you put expedience over the top of it. That's what your Greek-like looking front uh, image is all about, and you were wondering that, I'm sure. Expedience is the idea of making things easier, accelerating the process, advancing, stimulating, fast-tracking, making things more efficient. I want you to think about your life for a moment. From popcorn to money management to relationships to getting promotions, doesn't expedience rule the day? Aren't you constantly bombarded by products, apps, ideas that will make your life quicker and easier? I mean, if expedience rules anywhere, it rules in the Silicon Valley. We are generating this stuff actually for the world. And I'm not saying it's all bad. Expedience has a little bit of a negative connotation to it. But certainly if it's overshadowing obedience, it is bad. Let me give you the one fill-in that you have for this morning. It's really the thesis of the morning. This is the idea that, that I'm putting out to you this morning that I want to then walk you through Judges 1 and, and, and show you how I came up with this. And you can see, uh, you judge for yourself whether I'm coming to the right conclusion. Here it is. The root of apostasy. What does apostasy mean? We, talk, we talked about this last week. Giant word in the book of Judges. Anyone have an, a sense of what, the, of what the word apostasy means? Turning away. Renouncing. That's right, falling off, right? So, so that's what apostasy is. It's denouncing something you once held to be true. Yahweh is the one true God, and then denouncing that either by your words or by your actions. So it'll be really important for us to, we don't hear the word apostasy a lot, that's why we're coming back to it. The root of apostasy is trading obedience for expedience. If you were to see a giant tree fall over tomorrow, you wouldn't think the problem started that morning, would you? You would understand there's probably been some issues with that tree to have that giant tree that's obviously been there for a really long time topple over all of a sudden. The root of apostasy, before you have someone or a nation falling away, there's a root, there's a disease, there are things happening there. And the root of that is trading simple obedience for the idea of expedience. What's most comfortable? What's easier? What's better right now in the short term? How can we speed this process up? This is getting really hard. And then, not overly the point in chapter 1, but certainly the point in the rest of Judges, the fruit of apostasy is misery. So you don't get to misery, the, the fruit of all this, until, until a different season of time. But early on, there's a, there's a problem in the root system, and that is when you trade obedience for expediency. This hit me on my commute here. My commute on Sunday mornings um, is the same as every other morning. I have one stoplight. And, uh, and if that stoplight's green, um, it's good. If it's red, it, it doubles my commute. It's terrible. Uh, I'm kidding. Um, so I was sitting at a stoplight this morning. No one's really out on Sunday mornings, unfortunately. Um, so I'm sitting there, and this dawned on me. I thought, you know, this sermon actually is a little bit of a living illustration of this truth. Uh, one of our elders asked, hey, how's studying going? I, I told him this. I said, you know, it's going slow. It's really good. I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying the process of laying out our Judges series, but it's just going slow. Here's what I said. I said, there just aren't a lot of devotional comments that are coming out of Judges, right? You don't see those quoted in the cute little Facebook badges that are sent around. People aren't quoting Judges a whole bunch, right? This sermon is going to be a living illustration of this truth. 
I really do believe that all Scripture is inspired by God. You, you have made a choice to come here this morning, early on a Sunday morning, when you can be doing a lot of other things, because you are trusting that the Word of God will be preached, and that the Word of God has impact for your life today, that you should subject yourself to the truths in Scripture. So that's why we're here. That's, we're here to place ourselves under the authority of Scripture. What's expedient is to go grab a few little snippets on whatever you're feeling this morning that will kind of alleviate that. I'm feeling insecure. I need words of assurance. You know, you could type in biblical words of assurance. Wouldn't you get like 1.3 million hits right away? First two pages, you could kind of feed on that and be done, right? That's expedience. That's not bad. But that's expedience, right? It's going to be longer. It's going to trudge through a little bit more to work through bits of judges. I'll tell you, the middle part of this sermon gets a little technical. I might lose some of you. That's okay. I'm, I'm willing to, to risk it. But if we can make it through this sermon, it's going to be a little 40-minute uh, kind of living illustration of this point. God, we choose to be obedient, even if it's not the easiest way, even if we have to kind of trudge through sometimes. All right. Here is the backstory uh, to, to what is going on. Deuteronomy chapter 6 gives the nation of Israel simple, clear things for them to do. Here's how you obediently walk as the people of God. Okay, Let me, let me run through these fairly quickly. Uh, number one is to love and obey Jehovah as the only true God. Deuteronomy 6 is laying all these out. Deuteronomy 6. People... Of God, love and obey Jehovah as the one true God. Number two, teach your children God's laws. We review these verses often around here. Why? We have a lot of children around here. Have you noticed? So we are to teach them, train them up in the laws of God. It's a simple, clear command. And quite clearly, that is placed squarely on the families and uniquely on the fathers of the home. God says, I'm going to hold you accountable for how you steward these precious gifts that are entrusted to your household. Number three, in verses 10 to 15, is to be thankful for God's blessing. Do you know that our prayer time included thanksgiving? There are so many passages I could direct us to as we do prayer, corporate, and individual that say it should be marked always with words of thanksgiving. Do you know why that is? As we anticipate future battles, when we thank God for past times he's delivered us, doesn't that give us confidence moving forward in the future? Of course it does. So it was with God. He actually commanded them. Here, build these stones right here. So when your children's children ask, hey, why the pile of rocks, pops? You say, man, that's when God delivered us. God supernaturally divided a Red Sea and swallowed up an army that sure was sure to chase us if God didn't intervene. And so we remember that. We mark that. We'll never, ever forget that as long as we live. Number four is this. Separate yourself from the worship of pagan gods in the land of Canaan. In a nutshell, Deuteronomy 6 lays out simple, clear ways for the people of God, Israel, the nation, to be obedient. Unfortunately, the new generation failed in each and every bullet point that you see up there. Each and every one. Instead of seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness... That's Matthew 6, Jesus talking. They instead experimented with idolatry of the godless nations around them. And guess what? The results in their life were devastating. They got KO'd, if you will. Put to the mat. Politically, spiritually, morally. Disaster. 
If you want to flip over to the end of Joshua, I said that Joshua was quoted in Judges. I want to show you that. Joshua chapter 24, verse 31. It says this, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. That's how Joshua ends. Now skip over to Judges chapter 2, verse 7. Judges 2, 7 reads this, page or two to your right. And the people... Serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Does this sound familiar? It should. I just read it. Um, who had seen the great work of the Lord that, that the Lord had done for Israel. Then look down to verse 10. Now it's jumping into modern times. And all that generation who were gathered to their fathers. That's fancy talk for they died. Then it says this. And there arose another generation. This is the created order, right? Old people die. The new generation comes up. Another generation after them, catch this, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, on that one point, we actually don't know for sure whether it was a failure on the elders to teach the younger or a failure on the younger to receive that teaching. Isn't teaching a two-way street, right? You could all be right now checking the scores of the game, running together shopping lists, doing whatever you want. Communication's two-way. I have a role and you have a role right? The teaching and the passing on and the modeling and the instruction and the discussion as you go and as you rise up and as you lie down and all that we see in Deuteronomy 6. It's a two-way street. Either way, we know that it failed because they did not know the Lord nor the work that God had done for Israel. Act 1 of the Canaan conquest is seen in the book of Joshua. Moses gets them right up to the promised land, right? But he says, you're not going to go in there with them. Joshua is going to be the one to lead the nation in. And so that's what he does through military victories. In Act 2, the people were to then fully claim the inheritance by defeating and then dislodging the people who lived there. That's where we are. Old Joshua got the message. In Joshua 13, it says this. Now, Joshua was, was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. He was saying this, Josh, your, your job isn't done. There's still a lot of work to be done. Don't get soft. Don't stop. Don't let the nation become apathetic. Remember we said at the start of this series that prosperous people tend to get apathetic? That's true in a lot of ways. Certainly it's true spiritually. The people of Israel owned all the land, but they didn't possess all of the land. Therefore, their work wasn't done. Now, I want to address the kind of proverbial elephant in the text here for a moment. Because some of you are thinking this, and you're just far too polite to shout it out in a sermon time. And I really appreciate that. That could lead to chaos. But there's a bit of a moral problem that, especially as modern readers, we would have, and especially, I think, as Americans, we would have. And that is this. Is it moral for there to be land grabs? Is it moral for these people to go in and possess the land of someone else? That doesn't seem fair. That kind of rubs us a little bit. How can God direct these actions? How can he sanction them, command them to go and do it? You might feel like Bruce Almighty did. God is a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass, right? And you're, and you're a little bit too reverent to ask those questions externally, but you're thinking them, you're feeling them. Well, I want to address those. 
And I want to address it because this won't be the first thing that is unpalatable, that is distasteful, that you will read in the book of Judges. You'll read a lot of things in the book of Judges that you go, ooh, and you'll feel embarrassed for God about it. Is it okay to feel embarrassed for God? I don't know if it's okay, but we all feel that at times, right? So let's address it head on. I read a book this summer called Sifted. It's by a guy named Rick Lawrence. And the title Sifted is off this conversation that Jesus has with Peter. And he says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And that little encounter is what kind of prompts this book. And if you read that encounter in the New Testament, it's pretty fascinating. Because when I read that, I want to tell him to say, you're my protector. Tell him, no way. You're not getting near, Peter. So this book dives into what might be called the dark side of God. Those parts that we're embarrassed about, those parts that we're uncomfortable with. And here's this basic premise, that ignoring or glossing over these dark parts of God, seemingly dark parts of God, actually leave us functionally distant from God. So we can, we can sing praise songs about being close. We can draw near as best we can. But left undealt with, they will leave us guarded. Will they not? Because what if I get into that same situation and God acts in that same way? I want to quote from, from this book. He says this, God is not only good, He defines good. So how do we square His dark side with that? We're confused and scared by God's brutality. We're compelled to overlook or ignore or deny His dark side, but we just can't do that. If we deny what is plainly there in Scripture, we confirm, catch this, that there is something about God that needs to be covered up, to be overlooked and even camouflaged. And there is nothing about God that should not be known. There is nothing about God that should not be known. He's, he's not embarrassed or ashamed about anything He's done or is doing right now. I bet some of you respond to this quote the way I did. I can give intellectual assent to that. I agree with that. And my emotions aren't always caught up with my intellect. You sense that same thing? I can know that because of past experience. But sometimes we don't feel that this is true. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says this, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. It's saying that God's character is revealed in nature. I'll tell you what Christians sometimes are guilty of doing. We, we mention that God created butterflies. They're soft and fluttery and beautiful and harmless, but we neglect to talk about bees. For whatever reason, I've been stung by bees two times in the last month. And I'm saying, God, are you trying to tell me something? I've been stung since I was a kid. All of a sudden, I'm getting stung by bees. I'm listening, Lord. I don't want to get stung anymore. We don't talk about bees as much as butterflies. We mentioned dolphins, cute, friendly, and helpful, and brave. But he also created sharks, right? How about rainbows, comforting, colorful, and beautiful? But he also created weather patterns that cause hurricanes and earthquakes and fires and devastation. God created puppies that are soft and furry and strangely alluring with their breath, right? Um, but he also created something else fuzzy 
and whose breath we don't really want to get near, and that is like a grizzly bear, right? So what happens is in nature, we can sometimes tend to highlight the positives and feel like maybe we should shun this or wonder about that part, and so we just don't talk about it, and we kind of compartmentalize that. And the premise of this book and the premise of as we move forward with judges that I believe is true is this. If we do that, we're in danger of being excluded and guarded in our walk with God. We're limited in our intimacy that we can have with our creator. So what is God like? That's part of what we're seeing in the book of Judges. What is the character of God like? I can tell you this. He is fundamentally unlike us. Don't underestimate that. He sees, thinks, acts, and behaves in ways that are beyond us. Remember Job in the Old Testament? There's another one that Satan came and asked permission. Why? Because God's sovereign. He's on the throne. He has to give permission or else things don't go on. He asked permission to torment and persecute Job. What did, he, what did God say to Satan? He said, you, you've got him. You've got him, but don't kill him, right? So Satan has a field day messing with Job's life. You know what Job says at the end of this ordeal? By the way, end of the book of Job. Those of you who know your Bibles and have read the end of the story, does Job get all the answers we want Job to get? No way. No way. Here's what he says in Job 36, 26. Couldn't think of a more potent mouth to have this come from. God is greater than we can understand. Job seemed to make peace with the fact that he's a created being. That he's the pot, and the potter must have something else going on that he can't quite see yet. So God is fundamentally different than us. As we go through the book of Judges, and you're tempted to stand in judgment on the judge, caution, caution, church. God is fundamentally different than we are. So back to our question at hand. How is this moral that Israel is moving in to take the land? Here's my sense. If you are outraged at this, it's because you're making a fundamental assumption that the Canaanites were good people and that somehow you know fairness more than God. That's essentially what that is. You're outraged because you think that the Canaanites are good. Maybe you have pride in this and you go, heck yeah, there's going to be land grabs. It's the people of God. Those are good people. I'm part of that people, right? So if outrage is your deal or pride is your deal, let me show you that Moses assures us that neither one of you have any, any leg to stand on in that. Deuteronomy 9.4, you could just jot this down and test me on it later, but Deuteronomy 9.4 says this, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. Who's winning the battles for the people of God? It's God. God's thrusting them out. He's using the people of God. Don't say in your hearts, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that God has brought me in to possess this land. That's the pride argument. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Moses says in no unequivocal terms that the people who were in the land were wicked and perverse and God was exacting judgment on them. And he wasn't doing it because the Israelites were so good. If you want to read all the gory details of Canaanites being bad, just jot down. You don't even need to jot it down. It's in your community group questions this week. Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 18. 
Those two passages will show you. I went and read about the Canaanites, these people. You don't want to defend them. These were wicked, perverse people. God was exacting judgment. Israel was not, Israel was an instrument of Yahweh's justice. It's not palatable to us, but it was just. And the people of Israel were not good. Uh, this wasn't some reward for them being better than other nations. And when I look at that, I see the Christian story. We used to have a bumper sticker on our van back in the 70s and 80s when I was watching Rocky movies that said this. Um, it said, Christians aren't better, they're just forgiven. Christians aren't, Christians aren't better, they're just forgiven. Our Christian story is this. It's not that we're so much better. It's that, that God in his favor has opened our eyes to see his mercy and receive it and walk in it and repent. That's the Christian's story. Our victory and our inheritance is not what we do for God, but what God has done and continues to do for us. All right, I want to highlight the story of what's going on in chapter 1 by looking at, at some of the scriptures. What, what looks like a random reading of history and geography, if you just read Judges 1 cold, it just looks like a tangled mess of history and geography, and you're like, man, I was done with that high school. I'm glad I haven't had to go back. Um, it's actually quite organized. You don't need to write this down, okay? This is, this is just a little summary of kind of the, the chapter broken down, and I want to show you something. Um, look in Judges chapter 1, verse 2. It says this, The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Success is marked by the first 21 verses in the chapter. Judah essentially is on the bench, and God says, Judah, you're in the game. Go. By the way, you're going to win. <laughs> You're going to score a touchdown. Get in there. God is the good, good father. That's what we sing, right? And as the good father, he gives divine power. Look at verse 4. The Lord gave. If you underline, highlight in your Bible, which I hope you do, underline that. The Lord gave. What did he give? He gave the victory. Divine power is given to Judah. It's God thrusting out the enemy. It's not them and their military brilliance. The Lord gave. That's divine power. And then, skip down to verse 19, you see his divine presence. And the Lord was with Judah. I tell you, when I'm reading through the Old Testament, it's so easy to skip by those potent few words. And the Lord was with Judah. That's the good father using Judah to accomplish his will and giving him assurance. By the way, you're going to win. I've got a job for you, and I'm going to give you the assurance, and I'm going to give you the power, and by the way, I'm going to be with you in this. That's the good, good father in Judges chapter 1. For those of you who are minors of the word, and um, what Sunday morning does is kind of piques your curiosity and interest, and you want to dig in a little bit deeper, um, two things for you. Um, first of all, this series, we're going to be um, posting on our podcast a second set of questions that essentially walk you through um, a little daily exercise to interact with the text and go a lot deeper. Every time you look, look at your community questions on your notes this week, do you see how they're pretty long? They're about this long instead of this long, okay? Um, every week almost, it's actually about this long. And then what I do is I whittle it down to some more bite-sized manageable thing that you could probably get through in about an hour and a half in a community group. We've had some people saying, man, I would love to do that every single day. So we're going to take the time in this series 
to post online, something that you could actually interact with every day. So that's one little just tool coming up for this series. Secondly, um, if you were to compare God's deliverance, God the Father's deliverance in the Old Testament, and Jesus' healings in the New Testament, you would find this striking similarity. The way that Jesus heals in the New Testament is not ritualistic. It's not repetitive. It's not the same thing over and over and over that gets predictive, right? It's spit in the mud, mix it up, make some mud, and put it on your eye, right? It's go and wash in the pool. It's coming over here and be touched. It's I just thought it, and it happened from miles away, right? There's all this variety of ways that Jesus healed people in the New Testament. As you look in the Old Testament, what you can read is a summary statement like, and the Lord gave the victory to Judah. But if you mine a little bit deeper, even right here in chapter 1, what you see is this. God does the same thing in the Old Testament with deliverance. It's not just this ritualistic thing. Remember Jericho and marching around the city a whole bunch of times with trumpets? What was that all about, right? In this one chapter, there's romance, there's intrigue, and there's philosophy all just kind of woven into it. And it's just the personal God interacting in that situation. And here's part of at least what I think is going on. If we can predict how Jesus is going to heal, then what we can do is go, hurry up, just get to that part where you sprinkle me and I get cleaned and you breathe on me or whatever it is, those three steps. I want those three steps. Instead, doesn't it keep us guessing? Doesn't it keep us in a life of faith? To just go, what's going to come out of his mouth next? Go wash in a pool. Okay, I'll try that, but I've been in that pool. It ain't got nothing for me. But at your bidding, I'll go try that. And in the Old Testament, when God says, I want you to get all your musicians up front, the band said, amen. And they, we're going we're gonna to march around this city. And you go, well, Lord, that's in zero of the military tactics books that are on, you know, on the shelves these days. But at your bidding, we'll, we'll trust you in that. So in all this variety, I see God stirring up a faith in us. All right, uh, verse 22 in, in chapter 1 marks a significant shift. It says, the Lord was with, that's a good sign, but then it goes downhill from there. Uh, look at verse 27. Uh, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Look down at verse 29. Ephraim did not drive out uh, the inhabitants. Uh, look down to verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Do you see a pattern? Instead of driving out this cancer of perversion and sin and wickedness and following the assignment, they contracted the disease. Drive out the cancer of sin. Instead, they contracted the sin. This is the failure of the nation. Israel became a living illustration of Proverbs 14.34, which says this, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Obedience says, go in and possess the land. Don't stop until you've driven out the inhabitants. Slow and steady. Finish the race. That was the obedience voice. Here's the voice of expedience. The voice of expedience is this. Driving them all the way out is a lot of work. We've been on the road for a long time. We've been battling. We've subdued them as a people. They're not an immediate threat anymore. Let's rest. We deserve a break today. The voice of expedience says, why drive them all the way out? We've conquered them. Now let's get them to do the chores that we hate to do. 
Look at verse 28. When, the, when Israel grew strong, but they, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. You'll see that again in, in verse 33. Two examples of when people get um, comfortable, they get complacent. So here it is militarily. What's the simple command? Go in, uh, conquer the land, and possess it by driving out all the inhabitants. Rid the land of sin. I'm using you as an instrument of judgment. They thought better of that. Why would we steer out people who we could use to build us up and make stronger and do chores that we don't like so we can play on our iPhones? That was their thought process, right? And so they went with expedience. Is it more efficient to keep the people around subdued, working for you? Absolutely. In the short run, that seems like a fantastic idea. We have over here Exhibit A and Exhibit B. We have a tortoise and a hare. And what we have is this. We have the voice of obedience, which says, slow and steady, finish the race, don't stop. And we have the voice of expedience that says, I'm sure you've got this, we're good now, rest, keep people around. When we come over here to our scale, the people of Israel are valuing, are weighting expedience over obedience, right? Moral of the story is locked into our minds from Aesop's fables with this one, right? We get it. We get it. You know, Jesus predicted apostasy. Listen to Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. It says this, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And in the very next verse, Jesus gives the antidote to falling away as an apostate. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. How can you be sure you won't be an apostate? How can you be sure you won't be one that will renounce your faith? Two thoughts. One is, don't stop. Remain. Keep at it. That's your part. The second part is this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the end. You weren't so brilliant that you turned from a life of sin and saw Christ as beautiful unless it was given to you. That was God starting a work of faith in you. But do you see the two sides to it? Is it dependent on you? Is it dependent on God? The answer from the scripture would be yes. Right? You keep at your part. You keep at it. Now, some of you have remained with me for this whole sermon. This is a little microcosm of time and space, right? You've remained. You made it. You made it through the tricky technical part where there were tiny words on the screen and you were getting lost. But you've remained. No one's walked out. No one's an apostate here. Congratulations. I want to wrap up with some thoughts about how this changes my life. Sometimes we just read the scripture and say, God, by faith, I'm chewing on this. I'm not sure I'm getting much out of it, but by faith, I'm going to chew on it. If we come to every scripture and just say, if it applies to my life today, I'll read it, we would read a few parts of the scripture. In God's over-generous way, we come in faith and God gives us things we didn't even know we needed and weren't asking about. Here's what I'm utterly convinced of. You and I are prone to expedience over, over obedience as well. We haven't outgrown what the people in the time of judges were wrestling with. 
In fact, it might be more tempting now than ever. Apathy in the realm of first love is alive and well. Remember the warning from Revelation? Return to your first love. Don't fall away from your first love. And apathy in your first love is alive and well. And guess what? It's causing misery in Christians. Every one of us in this room have areas of compromise that God is waking us up to. How about as a nation? A nation that lapses into the easy and avoiding the hard. You know what that is? That's the root of apostasy. That is a disease that will bear fruit in another season of falling away. Now, this passage isn't about our personal sin. It's about a nation. But don't you see in the national conscious of Israel your own personal story being revealed before you in the pages of Scripture? I do. On the cross, Christian, we are given victory over sin. And the battle is all God's. It's God that came in and thrust out the power of darkness in the life of a Christian. That's God's part. And, Christian, you are to drive out the inhabitants in your flesh. There are some natives that live in you. It's called the flesh in Scripture. And the Bible literally says to kill it. Don't make peace with your sin. Don't make nice with your sin. Don't learn to accommodate your sin into one tiny corner of your land. Drive it out completely and do not stop until that's done. Christian, if you are making nice with your neighbor in you called sin, you see the result in the book of Judges of where that leads. If Judges is going to show us anything, it's going to show us that God is a holy God He's deeply concerned about his righteousness, and he doesn't take sin nearly as lightly as many of us do. The command is to wake up. God assures his people then and now that he is giving the victory, and he is with them. And here's my admonition, church, as I close. Rest in that truth, so there's the rest part, and strive toward holiness. Rest in the fact that, God, you're the one who's giving divine power to accomplish this. You're the one who's offering divine presence to walk with me through this. And I'm going to do my part and drive out the inhabitants of sin in my own life. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your spirit that's at work in us, God, and the miracle that can go on in a single text that can speak to many of us in many different places in our lives. And, God, as we wrap up with a song that just is a simple declaration God, I pray we would strip away complexity and we would just get back to simplicity. What does God simply call us to do? And then without question, just begin to walk in that. God, we thank you that you've called and commanded and you delight in the fact that we love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. God, I pray that just now as we look in the mirror, as the scripture reveals our own hearts, our own lives, our own nation, to us, God, that we would be on our knees crying out to you that we need you still. We're reliant on you still. And we thank you for the victory we have in Jesus' name.